one who has been born king of the Jews, we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Speak now, Lord, your servants are listening. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. As we have a seat, grades four to six can make their way to the lobby. Well, as we've seen today, we celebrate Epiphany. And if you have not the foggiest idea about what Epiphany is, I really don't blame you. You know, with, with Christmas, it's very easy to point to an event. Christ is born. Same with, same with Easter. Christ is risen. But with Epiphany, it's like, yeah, isn't that about the wise men or the Gentiles or something? It's not as easy to point to a single event and say, this is what we're celebrating. With Epiphany, uh, we commemorate actually three events that are each epiphanies or revelations of Christ's divine glory. These are the baptism of Jesus, the miracle of the water turned wine, and the adoration of the Magi, or the worship of Jesus by the wise men. Each of these events reveal in their own way the Christian conviction that the human being known as Jesus of Nazareth, who was born as a human from a human mother, is also at the same time as we just said, God from God, light from light, true God from true God. But there's another epiphany of epiphany too, and this is the epiphany that we just read about in the epistle reading today, the first reading, and that is this, that God, that Jesus is not only God for the Jews or for one particular people or for Western people, he's God for all nations and all peoples. It's the mystery that in Christ, people from all nations, even people who were once hostile towards one another, are reconciled to one another and gathered into one body in Christ. That's the objective reality that Christ has accomplished, and now as the church, we're called to live in to that reality. I think that the event that best encapsulates both of these epiphanies, that is, Jesus is God, and that he's God for everyone, is the gospel that we just read. That is, non-Jewish astrologer magicians from outside Israel coming to worship a Jewish child as their own God. <laughs> That's definitely something that has to be revealed. We don't, we, we don't learn that by looking at nature. So what do we celebrate at Epiphany? In short, the human Jesus is revealed as God for everyone. That's what we celebrate at Epiphany. So this morning, we're going to take a look at that story of the Magi, or the wise men, from Matthew chapter 2. There's lots of things that we could pull from this gospel today, but I think this story can function as a kind of map for growth in the Christian life. I'm going to identify four movements, or stages, or phases in the journey of the Magi that may correspond to our spiritual journey in Christ. And here they are. I'll, I'll lay them out for you from the outset. Number one, Christ is revealed. Number two, Christ is opposed. Number three, Christ is worshipped. And number four, Christ is followed. So that's kind of where we're going to go this morning. First one is that Christ is revealed. First one. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come 
to worship him. Now, who and what are these magi? The only thing we know for certain from the text is that they're from the east and that they studied the stars. The text doesn't say how many there were. We don't know if there were three or less or more. Uh, nor does it say that they were kings. Ancient Greek, the ancient Greek historian Herodotus speaks of the Magi as a priestly class of the Medes, who were an ancient uh, Iranian people. They're known as interpreters of dreams. Other ancient sources describe them as being authorities in esoteric knowledge, educators, sages, philosopher kings. Our English word magic comes from the word magi. But we don't know exactly who they were. Uh, in Matthew 2, all we know is that they're from the east and that they looked at the stars. We don't know what their names were or exactly where they're from. And I'm not going to speculate. What I want to focus on is how Christ reveals himself to them. And I find this just very fascinating and exciting. Theologians sometimes distinguish between general revelation and special revelation. General revelation refers to God's revelation of himself to everyone everywhere. So we might think of things like the light of creation, the light of reason, the light of conscience, and the light of providence. Special revelation refers to God's revelation of himself through the writings of the law and the prophets and apostles, all of which point to Jesus as God's final revelation of himself. In the book of Hebrews, it says, long ago, God spoke to his people through his prophets, but now he has spoken to us by his son. In the story of the Magi, we see a movement from general revelation to special revelation. Initially, the Magi learn something of the Christ by their observation of the heavens. They look at the stars, they look at the sky, they look at what's been created, and they learn something of Christ. Now, of the nature of the star that they saw, and there's been all kinds of speculation on this, was it a comet, was it two stars coming together? I don't know. We don't know. Uh, or how exactly they deciphered that the star had something to do with the king of the Jews, we can only speculate. We don't know. What we do know is that the general revelation they observed in the heavens, in creation, prompts them to seek out more information, to inquire. Their seeking and inquiring under the hand of providence leads them to special revelation from the scriptures. From Herod and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, the wise men learn from the scriptures, specifically Micah chapter 5, that the king of the Jews was to be born in Bethlehem in Judea. And the scriptures, the written word, leads the Magi, under the hand of providence, to Jesus himself, the living word. So we see this movement from general revelation in creation and reason and providence to special revelation and ultimately to Christ himself. Christ is revealed. But he's not only revealed in this story. I think we can see in this chapter that God is lovingly drawing and wooing and, and, and leading the wise men to himself. I know that some of us here have similar stories. I've been able to hear some of those stories over the last number of weeks. I've been greatly appreciative of those, and I can't wait to hear more as we have opportunity to meet together. 
So that's the first kind of stage or phase. Christ is revealed, and we see that he's revealed broadly in creation, in conscience, and by providence, reason, and then specifically uh, in Scripture. Secondly, and this is another phase of the Christian life that we need to come to terms with, Christ is opposed. Christ is opposed. Verse 3, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. And then down in verse 16, we learn that Herod was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. So the Magi who worshipped the Christ and were therefore, in, in, a real, in a very real sense, new Christians, were affected by this opposition. Verse 11 says that they were overjoyed, but their joy was very quickly checked by the threat of persecution. So they were warned in a dream not to return to Herod. And in our own spiritual journeys, the fact of opposition to Christ and therefore to us as belonging to Christ, is something that we must come to terms with as well. The name of Jesus, you may have noticed, is not a neutral name. We know that if we utter the name of Jesus in the public sphere, people are not going to be like, oh, yeah, whatever. Something's going to happen. Something's going to happen. It's not neutral. It, it is a saving name. It's a healing name. It's a name that contains good news. God saves. The Lord saves. But it's also a threat to the powers that be because it demands allegiance above all other names. We know that almost every apostle went to their deaths for the name of Jesus. Jesus himself spoke of this opposition very often in the Gospels. So um, if... if you've come to understand that when you become a Christian, your life becomes very simple and easy and smooth without any uh, problems or without any stress or without any opposition or trouble. Uh, I'm, I just want to say that is not part of the deposit of faith. <laughs> That's something else. In the Gospel of John, Jesus says, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That's why the world hates you. Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. Remember the parable of the sower? The word of God is compared to seed that is scattered on different types of ground. Jesus spoke of the rocky ground as those who, when they hear the word, immediately they receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, says Jesus, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. So it's good for us to know from this text and from other texts, that opposition will come. It's good to know. Jesus promised, in this world you will have trouble. In fact, I think this is on a sign in the, in the outside when we're walking out of church. What I think is super clever. You're going out of church, 
And, and the sign is saying to you, prepare. As you go out from this place, you will encounter trouble. But the second part of that verse is so wondrous, isn't it? But take heart, for Jesus has overcome the world. If we profess Christ, we may have to give up many things. We may not, but we may. We may have to be viewed as unsophisticated or bigoted or archaic or misguided. We may be excluded because we refuse to participate in certain things out of love for Christ. But the flip side is that we get Jesus. <laughs> we get Jesus. He is the pearl of great price. He is the treasure in the field that we give up everything for because he's the treasure. And he's worth more than anything that this world can offer. When all the fleeting things that lead to sin and death are gone, he will remain in all of his glory and we will be with him and we will be like him. Listen to some of his names in the scriptures. I want to read these to remind us of what we have. He's our advocate. He's the bridegroom. He's the desire of nations. He's the first and the last. He's the holy one, the hope of Israel, the hope of nations. He's our inheritance. He's the king of Israel, the king of glory, the king over all the earth. He's the lion of Judah, and he's the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. He's the light of Israel, and he's the light of the Gentiles. He's the Lord. He's the mighty one, and he's the man of sorrows. He's the prophet, purifier, prince of peace, our redeemer, refiner, the righteous one. He's our salvation, our sanctuary, our shepherd, our strength, and our sure foundation. Praise him. So we see in the story of the Magi and in our stories that Christ is revealed and that though Christ is the treasure and our treasure, that believing in him and uttering his name will, he promised, provoke opposition. Christ is opposed. So Christ is revealed. Christ is opposed. Thirdly, Christ is worshipped. Verse 11. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. This is another crucial movement or stage in the Christian life, worship. But notice that the worship of the Magi doesn't amount to saying things or singing things. It's described as bowing down and presenting. That's what worship is in this text, bowing down and presenting. Let's take presenting first. They opened their treasures and presented him with gifts. That is, they handed over the best of what was theirs to Jesus. That's worship. We truly worship when we're not just when we're able to say to the Lord, I love you, I thank you. And that's very important. It's very important to, to praise and worship with our lips. That's all good. But our verbal worship is ratified when we offer back to the Lord all that he has given us. This is what Colton was talking about in the stewardship time, right? All my gifts, my personality, my body, my finances, all that I have is, is God's. 
So, Lord, direct me to use what I have according to your will. That's worship. And secondly, they bowed down, or literally, they prostrated themselves. They kissed the ground in front of Jesus. Again, this is biblical worship. Placing all that we have and all that we are under the Lord Jesus Christ. In response to Christ's perfect offering of himself for us, we respond with our imperfect offering of ourselves and our souls and our bodies to him. We come under the authority of Jesus and we allow him to rule our our lives according to his will. Which is a good segue into our final point and our final phase in the Christian journey. Number four, Christ is followed. Followed. You could say Christ is obeyed. Verse 12, And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. So having met the Christ and worshipped him, the Magi now had a new king. They couldn't return to Herod, and they couldn't walk the same road as they had walked before. They now followed a new king by a new path. This is what it means to be a disciple. To be a disciple ultimately means we become apprentices of Jesus. And we learn by grace to walk in his ways. Not perfectly, of course. There will be many, many bumps along the way. And many questions. But to be a Christian means that our first allegiance is not to ourselves, to our own will, to our own comfort. It's not to the current values of the current culture. As Christians, our first allegiance is not even to our family. It's not even to our nation or to our culture. Our first allegiance is to Christ, and under him, everything else is rightly ordered. Now, what does this mean for us today? Well, I think all of us today will be in different phases of our Christian journey. Some of us may be seeking, inquiring, Some of us may be coming to terms with the fact of opposition to Christ. We're we're coming up against opposition. Some may be learning what it means to worship. And some may be beginning to take following Jesus seriously. Whatever phase we're in, and by the way, we may be in multiple phases at the same time, and I don't think these are necessarily linear or one comes after the other. Uh, They're overlapping, and sometimes we start in one place and we dip and we go into another one. So it's not, not a linear progression. But whatever phase we're in, how is, the question is, how is Jesus wooing us, calling us, drawing us to himself, and calling us into the next phase of discipleship? Maybe we're inquiring, and we're trying to sort out God as generally revealed in nature, or in conscience, or reason, or providence. And perhaps this morning, the Lord is calling us to look at Christ specially revealed in Scripture. Joining a catechism class would be a great way to take the next step from general revelation to special revelation. So you can come and see. Come and see. Some of us here may be going through uh, deconstruction, so we're actually coming at it from the other side. So we're not inquiring from a non-Christian perspective. We've grown up a Christian, and now we're actually inquiring from that perspective Uh, What does deconstruction mean? Well, that word is kind of bandied about a lot these days. Um, what What it means is that we're holding up the worldview that we inherited 
we're taking it apart, and we're holding it against some standard. That's what it means to go through deconstruction. And we're seeing if what we inherited holds up to whatever standard. And by the way, we might think that we're not using a standard to compare it, but there's always some kind of standard that we're, we're comparing against. And I think this is something that everyone who has been born into a Christian home has to do at some stage. I think it's getting a lot of attention nowadays because there's so many people on social media saying, I'm deconstructing, I'm doing this, so it's getting a lot of attention. But, but it, it's actually a normal stage of every Christian life is to take a look at what we've received and see if it holds water. The question is, are we passively holding up our inherited worldview against the spirit of the age? Or are we holding it up against Christ revealed? We may find that some of our inherited beliefs don't hold up against Christ revealed. So we can let them go. We may find that some of our inherited beliefs do hold up against Christ revealed. And then we can hold on tight. And we may find that as Christ is continually revealed to us and in us, as we come to grow in our understanding of Christ as foretold by the law and the prophets and proclaimed by the apostles and loved and worshipped down through the centuries and the planted seed begins to bear fruit in us, we may find truth and goodness and beauty in Christ revealed that we never could have imagined. So deconstruction need not mean have a, a, a predetermined end, like we're, this is the last stop on the bus on the way out. It might be the threshold of something so much more glorious. And it can be very hopeful indeed. That's, in fact, my story. Uh, many of you know that I'm a, quite a private person, and I don't like to talk about myself. But I figure, and Carly's encouraging me to do this, sometimes you do, you do have to talk about yourself. So that, that, that story that I just said is really my story. You, you might know that I grew up in the Christian and Missionary Alliance, the pastor's kid. Uh, in, which is basically a main, as mainstream evangelicalism. And there was a very serious time in my life where I did take apart what I had inherited, and I decided to, to stack it up against what I, what I thought was, well, I wanted to know what was, what's the original Christianity? What, is, what, is, what, did, what have Christians always believed, all times, everywhere? So I have my little leaf on the tree, but I want to know what is the trunk? How do I get there? So I began to look at what the first Christians believed, the generation after the apostles. And I, I have to say, I found it to be a treasure trove, a treasure trove. That's my story. So I found that the scriptures were actually not a scientific textbook to learn information about a God far away. They're actually, <laughs> they testify of the living word who comes to life to me as I read the scriptures, that he is revealed in a special way in the scriptures, and that reading scriptures for Christians through the centuries is actually more like prayer and less like reading a textbook. Or I learned that we can really, really meet Jesus here at the table, that he gives himself to us out of his love for us. He gives himself to us through created things. I discovered that Christians believe that there's a link and a connection between heaven and earth, that they, that they interact with one another. And, and I discovered riches, riches in the Christian life. I discovered spiritual direction, that someone out there 
wants to help me follow Jesus. Isn't that good news? Someone out there, and there's lots of them in this room, wants to help you follow Jesus and to, part, and to, to, to listen to the Spirit to see how God is wooing and drawing you to himself. That's what I discovered. So for me, deconstruction was a, a doorway to, to riches that I'm still discovering, and it was very hopeful indeed. There, I just shared some, something personal about myself. See? <laughs> Maybe we're not going through deconstruction. Maybe we're coming to terms with the fact of opposition to Christ. And this is also something that we need to come to terms with. Perhaps we're at a crossroads. Do we want the approval of the world? Or do we want to follow Christ and make him known? Do we want the approval of the world? Or do we want to follow Christ and make him known? Following Christ and acknowledging him publicly may have consequences in our life. Do our friends, co-workers, family know that we belong to Christ and follow him? Do they know that Jesus is the center of our life? It's, it's ultimately a matter of trust, I think, and it's, it, this is hard. This is hard. Jesus has some strong but reassuring words for us from Matthew 10. So basically he says, this is what Jesus, I'm going to read this for you, but he says, I will take care of you. You are more precious than anything, and I will take care of you. And then he gives a challenge and a warning. But, but he, it's like he says, whatever happens, I'm going to be here for you. And then he, so it's like a pat on the back and then a punch in the stomach. Here's what he says. He says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. And then the next verse. Whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. Very, very challenging words. But the, the, the great truth behind it all is that God, Jesus, will take care of us. When we speak his name and troubles come, we have him. We have him. Or maybe we're coming to terms with what worship is. Perhaps the offering of our lips on Sundays does not really match up with the offering of our lives. And by the way, it never will. <laughs> so there's never going to be a time when our life is going to perfectly reflect Jesus, right, until he comes again and we will be like him. So it's a process, and that's okay. It's a process. But maybe we're, we're conscious this morning that there is an inconsistency between worship with our lips and worship with our lives. And God is calling us to offer all that we have and all that we are to him, come what may. Perhaps we've been resisting following Jesus in some area of our life. And today Christ revealed is calling us to discipleship. I don't know. I don't know where you're at, but I know that Jesus is calling us. And the question is, how is the spirit of Jesus calling, wooing, inviting you and me to follow him and to step into the next stage of our life with him.
Let's pray.